0: I fear that the average Christian is under the impression that the older you grow in Christ, the easier the battle becomes. That the closer you live to God, the easier your walk becomes. That the more openly you live for Christ, the more God will reward you with respect from others around you. We're under the impression, I fear, that God rewards faithfulness with smooth sailing and peaceful times. but there's one detailed account in the Bible that shatters all of those myths. It's the life of Daniel. Now by the time we reached the climax of his faithful testimony, he's in his mid-'80s. As you know, he has spent most of his life in a foreign country. a defeated country as one he came from. More than likely, he witnessed the death of his parents some 70 years earlier his life never went from difficult to easy his life never moved from dangerous to peaceful nearly every time we have seen Daniel his life is in jeopardy chapter 6 ends the narrative section or the biographical section of the book of Daniel and with that our study will end as well We looked at some of that prophecy from this man's life in chapters 2 and chapter 7 in our last session. We're going to end our study primarily focusing on the life of this man. Before the dust settles in chapter 6, and the biography of Daniel comes to a close, his lifestyle of wisdom will be etched into those kingdoms and certainly into our hearts and our minds as well. At least that would be our prayer. It's been said before that knowledge is knowing the right answer and wisdom is having the right attitude. Knowledge is the ability to repeat back the truth. Wisdom is being able to live out the truth. And as I studied this chapter, and it may be a familiar one to you if you've known the Lord for any length of time, as I looked at it again with fresh eyes and open heart, five words lift off the page of this man's biography that we'll use as an outline. These are five ingredients, demonstrations, attributes of genuine wisdom. The first word is personality. Look at verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they wouldn't be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. It's a biblical way of saying so. He won't lose his shirt. Now, Darius is more than likely one of Cyrus's vice regents. We know from history that his name was Ugbaru, chosen by Cyrus to reign as king in his stead in this capital city, that is. The name Darius is simply an honorary title like Pharaoh of the Egyptian world or Caesar of the Roman world. Darius, in fact, the word Dera from the Persian language simply means king. And this particular man will reign in this capital city under the rule of Cyrus. In fact, the last verse of chapter 5, just a few lines up, tells us that he received the kingdom, which means it wasn't his in effect, it was Cyrus's who commissions him to reign and he'll reign for about 14 years. Verse 3, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom because of it, effectively. Now mark that phrase. He was possessing an extraordinary spirit. You could, you could translate that an excellent attitude. Uh, simply put, he had a great attitude. And, and that marked him, by the way. And those around him. Wisdom is being demonstrated through his personable spirit. Spirit. The thing that made Daniel stand out to this man, Darius, was not the fact that he was an administrative genius. Not the fact that he had, you know, he's a great leader, he had just the right amount of charisma so that he was you know, likable but not untouchable. He wasn't being promoted because he, he knew how to hobnob with all of the politically well-connected and, and uh, the wealthy, the hoi polloi. The most attractive Thing about his life and your life and mine will never be the nameplate at the office, the salary and benefit package, what you drove to church in, and what kind of house you're going to go home to. None of that. The greatest attraction to Christianity is a Christian who seems to be glad he is. Motivated and, and driven by the joy of the Lord, which happens to be, it really is their strength we happened to contact a potential speaker for our summer series it's coming up a nationally known figure is known as a christian His agent said we never could get past his agent the agent said there's just no way around the seventy five thousand dollar fee and by the way we would have to charter a private jet and it had to be a certain size seventy five thousand dollars to come and share his testimony pastor bergraf said he would give his testimony for half that amount and we could skip the whole plane thing. <laughs> Here's Daniel. He's third in the kingdom before. And, and now he's, he, he's just known. He's down to earth. Everybody knows he's marked by this spirit, this winsome personality. And don't overlook the obvious. In fact, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told the last audience. Just, you know, don't go too fast. You already know the end of the story. Hang with me. Think through some things with me. As if you're seeing it for the first time. Don't overlook the obvious. At age 85, Daniel should have been the least personable man in the kingdom. By now he should be ill-spirited, bitter, angry. He's there in the kingdom serving one more pagan in the long list and he's there only because he was taken as a teenager from his home in his early teens when Nebuchadnezzar crushed Jerusalem. Jewish tradition long-held and early church fathers that Daniel had been indeed subjected to castration as a young teenager. Chapter 1 implies as much he's put under the care of the eunuch leader. We do know he remained unmarried his entire life. He's been forced to endure blasphemy after blasphemy by the men around him his political colleagues are idolatrous they're conniving, competing pagan men he's watched empires grow and then collapse and now at the end of his years of faithful service he's been sort of shuttled aside and forgotten only to be called out of retirement To interpret the handwriting on the wall That one more kingdom will fall Before he can make an exit after interpreting that message He, though he doesn't want it Is effectively promoted to prime minister The conquering empire that comes in that evening Immediately drafts him as one of the three leaders Overseeing a collection of political leaders Who will have him soon thrown to the lion's So that they can get on with padding their pockets. If there's anybody in the kingdom with the right to be a bitter old man. To be anything but winsome. To have anything other than an extraordinary spirit. It is this elderly man. This 85 year old bachelor. Who'd lived nearly his entire life in a country that ignored his God and used his people listen if you were god in charge of writing this man's biography wouldn't you think to yourself by now you know it's it's time to just sort of allow daniel to phase out of this life of political pressure it's time to let him grow a little vegetable garden or maybe sit on the porch of some cottage overlooking the euphrates it's time for Daniel, perhaps even better, to come up here with me. This faithful servant has... It's time to gather him to his full reward. But God is writing the biography. Not you and me. And in the mind of God, which, which needs to just stun us a little bit here, if you can believe it, In the mind of God, it is now the time to test his heart and to test his life to a limit it has never been tested before. Now he's ready for the greatest test of all. It's time for wisdom to shine through like never before. There's another word that comes to mind. It's the word integrity. When you think of Daniel, you automatically think of integrity, don't you? When the news leaks out that the king is going to promote Daniel over all the rest of them, notice what happens in verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps begin trying to find, you ought to note that word, find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find, there it is again, no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. That verb for find there uh, informs us of the tenacity of these officials searching for something against Daniel, some ground of accusation. Sort of like when a candidate in our country or even the countries represented here in a democratic culture, runs for office. The rivals begin the process of turning over every stone. We gotta find some bugs somewhere. We gotta find some worms. I mean, surely this Jewish bachelor he has some dirt hiding somewhere. I mean, he's, he's lived in Babylon. And when did when Babylon do as the Babylonians, right? shouldn't be too hard. We've got 70 years to sift through. We'll find it. So they, if they lived in this culture, effectively started trailing Daniel. They hacked into his computer. They checked all his mail. They tracked his credit card expenses. It's got to be something. Would you notice... They're inspecting his public life from top to bottom. The text reads, look again, they're trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. That is, they're going all the way back to when he was about 19 years of age inducted into that post, government post under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and then all the way through to the reign of Belshazzar. And listen, it's government affairs they're looking. at. They, they couldn't care less about, his, about checking into his Old Testament Bible reading plan. They're not interested in his religion. They couldn't care less about his prayer life. At least not at this point. And they wrap up their search. We don't know how long it took. but They gather in some back room somewhere to deliver all their results and... Every one of them are are scratching their heads, no doubt, with a a measure of amazement. This guy is clean. We can't find anything. Notice the last part of verse 4. And no negligence or corruption was found, note here the shift, in him. Now They've gone from public to private. I mean, a man can seem to be a man of integrity in public and not so in private. A man can appear to sound honest in public but be devious in private. So they've searched both. Dio Moody once said that character is what a man was like in the dark. Wouldn't it be great to be a little more like Daniel? I mean, how long would somebody have to tail us before finding a bug or two? under some rock hidden away if we want to live in 2013 like Daniel confess what you need to confess get right with God where you need to get right with God come clean you won't lose respect you'll regain it you, you won't forfeit fellowship with God. You will refresh it. Come clean. The question is Did Daniel know the investigation was taking place? Probably. So, what, what do these guys do now? Verse 5. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against. This Daniel, unless we find it, there's the word again, find it against him with regard to the law of his God. In other words, we've got to figure out a way to use his walk with his God against him. And they brilliantly come up with a plan. Notice the devious little plan in verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. Darius, live forever forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, all the prefects, and all the dirty little rats, I mean the satraps, we have all consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Here's the plan. O king, we're going to make you the god of the month. And the king thinks that's a pretty cool idea. Nobody can ask their god anything. They've got to ask you for whatever they want. And if they pray to any god but you, they get eaten by the lions. Now the king, in all of his humility, liked that idea. And he didn't notice one missing person. In this group, And that's probably because the word for agreement, they came in agreement. You could actually translate that they came in a throng. They came in mass. They came as a group. In other words, they packed in the king's courtroom with so many people that he would be less likely to notice there's one guy missing. And it worked. He didn't know it. Let me give you another descriptive word for wisdom. Personality, integrity, and now thirdly, consistency. Look at verse 9. Therefore King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Now follow this. Look at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew, when he knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, Praying, that is supplicating, and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. You need to understand that he's fulfilling what Solomon had said earlier. That if the people are ever in a distant land and they repent and pray toward the city of God, pray toward the temple of God, God will hear. He's praying that statement as his prayer request. Daniel already knows from the prophecy of Jeremiah that the captivity will only last 70 years, and he knows time is nearing its end, but he's praying that God will keep that prophetic word. That's his supplication. May these people repent. And by the way, they came into Babylon and they are polytheistic and idolatrous, and when they leave Babylon, they are monotheistic from that day to this day. He's praying for his people three times a day. Did you notice? This decree from the king is not going to change one thing. And I couldn't help but wonder, what does it take to get my prayer life stopped? How about you? What does it take to get your prayer life started? This did neither. Daniel could have had a, you know, he could have decided to have a month of silent praying. Right? Maybe, you know, not so obvious. Or maybe he could have prayed at night. It doesn't have to be at nine, noon, and three. Maybe go for a noisy cart ride every day and have, have some prayer time. You know, pull his hood up. and Nobody would notice. Maybe just 30 days of, you know, silent devotion. Or maybe skip it at all. Why not? For 75 years... He has consistently prayed to God in this manner. What would 30 days hurt? Just 30 days. And he didn't have to open his windows either. Keep them closed now. Nobody needs to hear. Besides, it's between you and God. He could have avoided what he knew was a trap. But you see, this was the pattern of Daniel's life. And Daniel refuses to change his pattern even in the presence of pressure to the point of death. John Phillips, that delightful British expositor I enjoy reading, who's now with the Lord, recorded in his commentary on Daniel a personal story. few paragraphs. Let me read it to you. He says this, I was struggling during World War II. He writes, I found myself in a crisis. I'd just been drafted into the British Army. I found myself sitting on a train alone except for a friend who had also been drafted. Like myself, he was a professing Christian. It was dark, cold, and a blustery night. As the train rattled down the tracks and roared through the tunnels, I did some thinking. And after a while, I said to my friend, Hey, hey, Fred, this time tomorrow, we're going to be in a big barrack room somewhere in Bradford. And what are you going to do when it comes time to go to bed? Or, or are you going to say your prayer in bed or down by your bunk on your knees? He did not hesitate responding to me. Well, in bed, of course. I retired to my corner and thought some more. I'd made a profession of faith at the age of 10. I had been drilled in all the basics of the Christian life. I knew, however, that I had no vibrant testimony. I thought back over my high school days, all the way up to my last few years in banking. I had been a compromiser. I'd managed to jog along showing one face to my friends at school and my colleagues at the bank and quite another face to my parents and my Christian friends. And I realized there in that drafty, noisy train that what I had was a second-hand faith, the kind of faith that Lot had who compromised with his world. I needed the faith of Abraham and Daniel. By this time, Fred was sound asleep I pulled my coat collar up and shrank down into my coat for warmth and there I prayed, Lord, I am not proud of my Christian life. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. But here and now, I want to settle it and I purpose in my heart to let you be the Lord of my life. I'm going to show that by kneeling by my bunk in that barracks tomorrow night and with your help, I'm going to be a genuine Christian from now on. John Phillips writes, I still remember that first day in the army. We got there, we arrived, we were hauled here, there, and everywhere. We were given shots and issued boots. We were offered tasteless army food and documents to sign. We were soldiers. And then bedtime came. I did what I decided to do. I put my Bible on my bed and I knelt down by my bunk, and nothing happened. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. I don't know whether or what I, I really prayed. I, I vaguely remember counting up to 50 and saying, Amen. But that was all right with God, I'm sure, for starters. I had made my statement. I had purposed in my heart I was going to live for God. Have you made that statement? Is it time to make it again? Daniel went into his room and effectively said, even though I may lose my life, I'm going to kneel. Why? Because I've always knelt. Not because that's the posture that only God observes, but that's how I've done it. I'm going to make supplication to God. Why? Because I've always done that. I'm going to give thanks to God. Why? Because I've always done it. And I'm going to open my windows. Why? Because I've always done it. In other words, I'm not going to compromise or change now that pressure's on in my life, and as far as he knew, his life would soon be over. The trap is sprung. Look at verse eleven. Then these men came by agreement, literally. Again, they thronged into Daniel's room and found him making petition and supplication before his God. And just to review or overview, he, they, they they go running with glee to the king. We've caught him. This time, he will not get away. Daniel, up in his room, probably prayed a little longer than usual, I would imagine. It may be his last time. And it's not his last time because he is disobedient to God, but because he is obedient to God. He's about to face the greatest test of his life, not because he is faithless, but because he is faithful. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, What Daniel believed, he practiced openly. No retreat, no backing off, no privatizing convictions. He knelt in the sight of Babylon. Oh, how we need more Daniels who will open their windows and honor God before a watching world no matter what. Man, is that good. Maybe it's time for you to open your windows to your watching world. Verse 14, as soon as the king heard this statement, all these tattletales, you know, they're there standing around in mass. Immediately, he was deeply distressed. Set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. In other words, there's got to be a loophole somewhere in here. Besides, the, the king knew he'd been purposefully deceived by these men in order to eliminate their honest competition. The only honest guy he knew he could trust. He knew he had been tricked by them. There's got to be a way out. Verse 15. Then these men, at the end of the day... Came by agreement to the king. There's that same phrase again. They came thronging. Why? Because they're cowards. That's why. Daniel stands alone. And these guys cannot move without being a part of the herd. How much like the world that blindly follows the crowd. How much like the Christian we should be. Like Daniel who is standing alone. Notice here, they said, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. There's no loophole. Daniel has to be thrown to lions. In my research, I came across one liberal scholar who said these weren't real lions. This wasn't a real lion's den this is simply poetic language and that this circle of political colleagues this is a metaphor they've turned into lions and they are eager to devour daniel daniel would have been happy for a little poetry right now this is not poetry these are real lions with real teeth this is a real den and daniel's dead archaeologists have uncovered Near Eastern lion's dens or caverns. And, and I want to kind of rewrite in your minds what might be a Sunday school picture with the real thing. And I'll try to describe it. They're dug deeply into the ground. And they're actually open. There's no roof. They can be seen from above. Steps lead down one side to an opening where a boulder can be rolled over that opening and back. In which they can deposit some criminal or some poor man or woman who will die, which they probably did with Daniel, or they can throw people over the top or the edge, which they will do with the officials later. The lion's dens were dug in this Middle Eastern fashion in in a square manner, having a partition wall built down the center, which divides the den or divided the den in half, At the base of that partition wall uh, was an iron gate hinged that could be swung up and open and down by a rope attached and held by those above. In this manner, they could throw food into one side of the den and get all the lions through that gate, close the gate, come down and deposit some criminal, someone to be executed or maybe even clean. Then once they cover that doorway, they can go up the stairs and they can raise that gate and the lions can come in and kill that unfortunate victim who has nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. All day long, the king is trying to get Daniel out of certain death. He's furious with these officials. He's angry at himself. He should have looked at the fine print. He should have scanned the crowd more carefully. He knew he had been duped. We're not told what he tried all day long. Maybe he thought, well, I know, I'll overfeed the lions so that when Daniel gets thrown in there, they're not hungry. Maybe he thought that he'd cover Daniel from head to toe with armor, just kind of carry him down and prop him up against the wall and hope it holds. No, all of those attempts would have been obviously seen as an undermining of his own decree—he can't do anything. There's no loophole. The truth is, only a miracle can save Daniel. Now, and you're saying, Stephen, we know, we know. You know, we, we've seen, we know the story. He, he, he gets out. The angel comes down. Everything's great. No, look, I've got 15 minutes or more. Okay, so just slow down. <laughs> Emphasis on more. Okay. The very fact that we know the end of this story. I fear, stuns our powers of observation and in our imagination. So let's slow it down a bit. Verse 16. The king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, while he's down there in that half section, the king from above speaks, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Now, evidently, Darius accompanies him to the den. And Darius, did you notice, is the one who declares the statement of faith for Daniel. You know, kind of an optimistic hope. He knew this was the only hope. He had had records of the past. He knew of the delivery of Daniel's three friends. He's stating the truth. Your God... Did you notice? He does not say, whom you just began serving when you found out you were going to die. No. Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. In other words, that's the only way it works. But would you notice that Daniel does not say a word in return. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, well, amen. That's right, king. That's exactly what's going to happen. I'm believing in miracles down here. God will come through for sure. I'm I'm declaring my victory even now as we speak. He says nothing. Why? Perhaps it's because Daniel doesn't think he's going to get out alive. Not because God can't. But because God might not. You see, Daniel wasn't going to make promises that God didn't plan to keep. Which would be a great thing for Christians to do today. Stop putting words in God's mouth. God will deliver Daniel, but he might choose to deliver him through death. And this 85-year-old man is willing to trust his God either way. So he remained silent. And I believe... Because he's a real man, he's feeling just like you would feel, or I would feel, at this particular moment, fearing the end of his life. How brave are you? When's the last time you were afraid? I can always tell how brave I am by how I respond with noises in the night. Evidently, I'm not growing in bravery. I can remember when our children were small. We'd recently moved into our first home. We'd rented a little house for about five years. Finally moved into our first home. Every house has its noises. That's what we tell ourselves to make us feel better. But we were asleep. It was around 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. when when a bang and a thump. Was heard. And it, 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 I woke up. I looked over at Marcia, and her eyes were wide open too. And she looked at me with that look that said, "I heard something." We just kind of lay there and stopped breathing, listened. About fifteen minutes later, about the time you figure, okay, it was just some random house noise or maybe a branch falling on the roof. We were surrounded by pines. Um, we could go back to sleep, and, and suddenly, boom, thump. Same sound. I got out of bed and walked over and stood at the bedroom door listening, just barely breathing. My wife said, Why did you go upstairs and look around? It sounds like it's coming from the boy's closet. That's the scariest place on the planet right now. The boys' closet upstairs. In fact, the boys were not here. They were in Atlanta, little toddlers at the time, twin toddlers, and with their grandparents. So there's nobody up there. And it's dark. I said, okay. But I want you to walk out with me to the living room and stand at the foot of the stairs while I go up there. And She said, are you serious? I said, I, I am not going to go die up there and nobody know. You, <laughs> you, you stand there. So we crept down the hallway and, and into the dark living room. She stood at the base of the stairs, and I walked up the stairs into that open loft, which was dark, and I made my way through it to the, to the boy's bedroom, and I felt inside for the switch, pitch black, and found the switch, and nobody was in there, and then I got up enough nerve to open the closet door, the walk in closet there and nothing was in there and all that was left now was to go into their little bathroom and, and on the side of their bathroom was a little door that led directly into the attic. That's where monsters live. I opened that door and I reached in to try to find that string to pull that light bulb on just expecting at any moment to have my hand seized. I found it, turned it on, nobody was there. I lost two years of my life for nothing. I guess it was pine cones. I have no idea. Some of you have real stories of really fearful things happening. Some of you have risked your lives. Some of you have come close to losing your life. When was the last time you were afraid? Was Daniel frightened? Have you ever been close to a lion? I have been on an African preserve in a Jeep, and those lions walked by me, and you can hear through those windows that are rolled up. They're purring. It just tingles right here their shoulders as high as the window. Did he drop to his knees? Did he face that iron gate that would soon be lifted? Or did he have his back to it? Did he wonder how long it would take if it would hurt? And for how long? He could hear the gate opening He braced for the rush. He had heard the roaring as those lions jockeyed to be the first through the gate. And suddenly, strangely, the den grew quiet. He may have felt the nuzzle of a nose, the brush of a lion against his gown. He opened his eyes, perhaps at that moment seeing an angel wrapping something, as it were, around the mouths of these lions or just commanding them to keep their mouths closed. An angel. Don't skip over the fact that God could have miraculously put those lions to sleep. God could have miraculously shut their mouths without any assistance of an angel. God could have turned those lions into playful cats (laughs) who... who wanted to do nothing more than play fetch with with Daniel, though cats don't play fetch, cats don't play anything. I digress, I'm sorry here. (laughs) But isn't it interesting that Daniel is not only delivered, but that God gave him some company at the most terrifying moment of his life, and perhaps in this 85-year-old man's life, the most lonely of his life. At dawn the king, as you know, rushes from his royal bedchamber and runs all the way to the den shouting, Daniel, verse 20, servant of the living God is your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions. And all those, you know, dirty rats are following the king down the corridor. Daniel spoke, verse 21, Oh, king, live forever. And I'm sure the king thought, Wow, wow. What a shock! He's alive. Now before we notice what Daniel said, I know most of you know what Daniel said. I've got 15 minutes left. (laughs) So think with me for a moment what he could have said. Ever thought about that? He could have given the king a stinging lecture. What do you mean, is my God able? Don't you know my God is able? And haven't you learned by now that I am one of his prophets? He, uh, he could have acted really brave. King, there's been nothing to fear at all. I've had a great night's sleep. You don't look like you've slept at all yourself. He could have acted nonchalant. King, this is no problem. I've, in fact, I've gotten to know all these lions. There's puddles and there's cuddles, and I've named this one princess, and uh, I ought to come down here more often. This has been good for my devotional life. And... He could have acted with revenge. His first words could have been, Where are those officials who trapped you, O King? None of that. In fact, I read just a few days ago about (laughs) this is more like it, about a truck driver who was eating his food in a truck stop. He was small, short, small in stature. His meal was interrupted when three bikers pulled up. Big rough guys. They walked in and ordered their food, sat at the counter, and then they spotted the little guy and began to tease him because he was so small. They treated him like a little boy. They tussled his hair and eventually took his plate of food and threw it away. He quietly said nothing, just paid for his food and left. Three bikers laughed and said to the waitress, he isn't much of a man, is he? She peered out the window and said, no, he isn't much of a truck driver either, he just backed over three motorcycles. (laughs) Yeah, we like that. Get him back, that'll teach him. Well, Daniel never calls for that. The king will take care of that because they deceived the king. they will leave no survivor. There's humility in Daniel's response, which would be another word. Humility. What he could have said was, a lot of different things, but what he did say in verse twenty two was this My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they've not harmed me. I'm innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I've committed no crime. Just just the facts. No bragging rights, no chip on his shoulder. If there's ever a reason to be even more bitter, it's now. There's another word, one more that comes to mind in this demonstration of a wise man's life. It's the word legacy. Daniel's legacy is found in the lives of two kings who will declare their faith in God, their testimony of faith in the true living God. It happens here. It happened with Nebuchadnezzar and now Darius in verse 26, for the God of Daniel is the living God enduring forever and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. Daniel will live long enough to influence Cyrus, And Cyrus will issue one of four decrees that allow the people to go home again. There will be three more after Cyrus's. In fact, Daniel prophesied a staggering prophecy in chapter 9 that at the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, that when that effectively begins, 483 years later, Messiah, Daniel says, the prince will come. That famous decree is issued by Artaxerxes Longomanus to a man by the name of Nehemiah who goes and rebuilds Jerusalem. That's 445 B.C. when that decree is signed and 483 years later. In fact, Bible scholars can pinpoint it to the very day Jesus Christ on an unbroken colt rides into Jerusalem and the crowd chants, Hosanna. The son of David has come. The prince is here. Staggering prophecy. Daniel also in chapter 9 says, but that Messiah prince will be cut off. That is, he'll be killed suddenly. The Messiah killed? Yes. Isaiah 53 fills in some of the blanks, he'll die for the sins of those wayward sheep who've gone astray. Daniel's legacy and prophecies will continue to be studied for generations until the Magi, the wise men, the Magoi, their name, the Magi wise men, that he once was master over, that he once taught. By the way, they were not part of the officials who sought to end his life. They're not there. They revered this man. Centuries later, the gospel opens with that account that the Magi arrive from the land of the rising, the land of the east, Persia. And they come in with a question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? In other words, Daniel, the master of the Magi, prophesied that about this time we should be looking for the prince we believe because of the star, I believe translated shining, the Shekinah glory of God has led us. It's disappeared right now, so would you tell us where he's been born? We're sure you would know. For we've come to worship him. They're already believers. These magi from the east. They're ready to worship the prince. Matthew records that they're directed to Bethlehem. You would think that all of the Jewish leaders would rush along with them, but none of them show up. And they find Mary and Jesus not in a stable, but in an oikia, in a house. Jesus is at least a year old by the time they arrive. Matthew calls him a child, a paideia, and a toddler. And they kneel before him and worship him and present him their gifts. And who are they? They are kingmakers. You can't mount the throne of Persia without their blessing. You must be appointed in that coronation by the magi. They have come to announce they are effectively crowning the prince who is the heir to the throne of David. And from whom did they learn to anticipate the prince? From a wise man named Daniel, whose legacy spans the Testaments, old and new. A man who demonstrated for his 75 plus years in these kingdoms these elements of personality and integrity and consistency and humility, and he left a legacy. Now, you might be tempted to think that Daniel had it made as we've studied his biography. It seems that every king who comes along promotes him. wasn't that bad. Listen, Daniel was never allowed by God to return home. He never went back to the place toward which he prayed three times a day. He was never allowed by God to return with the people with the issuing of those decrees. God's answer was always the same to him. Daniel, I want you to stay here in the courts of Babylon and Persia. And not only provide a model of wisdom, but deliver the truth of a coming Messiah. And even beyond, as we've learned, to a coming kingdom where Jesus Christ will reign. And by the way, it will include every one of us here who have in their hearts crowned Him Prince, Lord Messiah is he yours today would you pray with me for just a moment and then we'll be dismissed with your heads bowed for just a moment I wonder which crowd do you represent those living for Babylon or these wise men including Daniel who are looking for a kingdom we have seen this prince come once and these staggering promises and prophecies come true and all the prophecies of Christ's second coming are going to come true as well in which crowd will you stand in that day If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it would be a delight to take the Word of God and make sure that you know this Prince. Maybe you know him, but you would line up with John Phillips who said there on that train, it was time for me to begin living for Christ and making it open and, as it were, opening the windows of my life to a world that watched me. Maybe that's the statement you need to make. Father, it is a delight to see your word come true and to anticipate the fulfillment of Scripture yet future. But even now, would our lives and our hearts be a palace ground upon which you can walk as our Prince, our Lord, our Messiah as a benediction let's sing O come O come let us adore O come